Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. Remember last week I said the great difficulty and danger in all of this is everybody wants to leap to Leviticus chapter 18 immediately and say, can we have a good row about that? Uh, But before we go anywhere near that, uh, not only do we have to do the stuff that we did last week, we've got to do a little bit more background stuff, but it's uh, more directly related perhaps to the text. First thing I want to do is uh, to define the terms that we're using. Uh, Some of you will be aware that last week in the UK, the Gender Recognition Act uh, was out for consultation and the deadline for replying to that consultation was last Friday. You're aware of that? Uh, Anybody put in a a, a submission or or whatever it might be? Uh, Well, part of my job is to look at all of those sorts of things. And I have to say to my great dismay, uh, I... I can't say I discovered, but I became aware yet again that even within UK legislation, the terminology that's used is hopelessly confused. So, for example, the terminology used in the current Gender Recognition Act and the terminology used in the Equality Act are different. They use the same words to mean different things. And many, many discussions on sex, sexuality, uh, sexual relationships, gender issues, founder because we use the same words, but we're meaning different things by them. And once we go there, it's really difficult to come to any sort of meeting of minds. Now, here will be, in a moment, presented to you uh, the ways in which I'm using the common terms in this discussion. I haven't just thought them up. Uh, I've tried to take the the best of the work in my mind that's being done across this area. And while it it probably won't be the case that you go to any individual website and go, oh, look, that's exactly uh, what Brendan said this term meant. Um, I, I try to take the consensus of expert opinion and I've tried to put the terminology together in this way. So when we're speaking of sex, uh, other than in the way in which um, Steve was talking about sex and foreplay and so on a little bit earlier on, and if that bit wasn't taped, uh, then for anyone who's listening to to this on on recording, um, talk to Steve and he'll explain what that little reference meant. Uh, When we speak of of sex, uh, we're speaking of biological identity. In other words, uh, something that is based on genetics, anatomy and physiology. Sex, uh, as distinct as we'll see in in a moment's time from gender, uh, is a biological concept, usually expressed as female and male. Uh, Initially, I'd written down traditionally, uh, but that that isn't fair. It, It is still the case that when we're talking about biological sex uh, in in, in the species as well as in in human beings, uh, we're we're talking about biological um, characteristics and identity and still usually expressed as female and male. Uh, Now, where do you go for for this to to get a definitive 
answer, but I've tried to put uh, something somewhere in, in the realms of realism here. Uh, it is believed that about one and a half percent of the population worldwide is or are, I'm never quite sure what to use there, uh, intersex. Uh, and that means uh, th- th- those people do not conform at their birth and in their subsequent development um, genetically, anatomically, or physiologically to the common um, or standard model of what is male and female. You'll already be aware that I'm struggling to try to get the right words here because it's so difficult to speak about any of these issues without getting something wrong. I simply have to ask you to bear with me and accept that if I say something that is just bad or wrong, it's utterly unintentional um, and it's certainly not meant to be either inaccurate or or offensive. One and a half percent of the population... That's, anyone surprised at that? It is a lot. It is a lot. Uh, and, of, of course, uh, most of, of that isn't an, an obvious anatomical difference, so that, you know, a, a child is born and, and, you know, the midwife or the doctor goes, right, um, we want to talk to the parents. We, you know, we have uh, something to discuss here. Uh, mostly, it, it's either at a genetic or, or very often at, at a physiological level. Uh, I read a fascinating study during the week on, on twins and sexuality. This is a little bit different from the intersex thing, um, where they had a longitudinal study of identical twins. Uh, and they chose those identical twins where one twin was heterosexual and one twin was uh, homosexual. Uh, and so, you know, they were saying, well, clearly there is not a genetic difference. Um, therefore, sexuality is not genetically determined. Uh, well, no one argues that sexuality is genetically determined, uh, although it is genetically influenced. Uh, but they then discovered that physiologically there were distinct differences. Uh, And when they did all the scientific stuff that needs to be done, um, one of the reasons that they they believed why these identical twins were physiologically different uh, is that they were uh, open to or they received different amounts of various uh, hormones from their mother while in, in the womb at different stages of development. So when we look at the, the science and the biology uh, of, of sex uh, as biological identity, it's at one level completely fascinating, at another level very largely uh, and deeply misunderstood. Gender, uh, which as a concept is, is a really new concept, uh, only about 50 to 60 years old in common and even academic discourse, uh, And it's difficult to try to bring this one together. But I'm saying here that gender speaks of personal and social identity uh, based on attitudes, roles, and and an inner sense. Often viewed as feminine and masculine. Not male and female, that's biological. Feminine and masculine uh, with non-binary expressions also recognized. uh, And the non-binary nature of of gender identity is, is really very new in the human race's discourse, uh, at least in, in our part of the world. 
uh, and it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that a lot of really good work has been done on sexual identity. Uh, we're only beginning to get academically really good work being done on gender identity because it, it, it wasn't a topic, it wasn't a subject 70 years ago. Uh, and only now are we really beginning to explore the idea that in terms of uh, gender identity, uh, it's not only is it not simply a matter of feminine and masculine, uh, or is it simply a matter of um, cisgender or transgender, uh, it's also non-binary expressions of, of, of gender. Now, how far you look into this, I, I don't know. I was looking at one academic study uh, that, that expressed 121 different gender identities. Um, I, I have no idea. I, I, I closed the book and thought, I'm not going to read uh, 121 because, you know, frankly, life is too short. Uh, but uh, it, it, at the very least, it was inclusive, which, which is good. Sexuality, uh, and this is really hard to describe. None of these are definitions, they're descriptions. Because it, it, it's almost impossible not to put a foot wrong and say the wrong thing here. But again, you know I'm trying not to do that. Uh, this is a range uh, of innate, and that's the crucial thing, innate. This is not a good word that's used to be used now, but I just couldn't find another one in the literature. Uh, innate orientation and desire or absence of desire for sexual intimacy with others, uh, with fluidity across time. Uh, one, one of the really interesting things that has come out in the last 10 years or so in some good academic studies uh, is how, while one's sexuality is innate, uh, a person's sexuality at 50 can innately be different from at least their understanding uh, of their sexuality at 20 uh, or 70 or whatever it may be. And if we had 10 weeks to do this instead of two weeks, uh, we could delve in, into that, which is a, a fascinating thing. And then sexual relationships. Uh, and I, I've given this description um, deliberately. Physical brackets and often emotional acts of sexual intimacy uh, but as we'll see, that, that, that is a, a rather modern uh, post-enlightenment view uh, of sexual relationships where emotional um, and, and, and psychological and personal interests are to the fore. Um, and then the last one that I want to do by way of defining our terms, uh, marriage. Uh, and I've tried to embrace different cultures and time frames in, in human history here, uh, a legal agreement between one or more people to live in sexual, social and economic union traditionally between men and women. Now, we could spend the rest of the night just looking at this one slide and going, do you agree, do you not agree? But th that at least is the, the ballpark that we're in. Okay, that's what I'm meaning. So really what I'm trying to do here is to make sure that we have a distinction between sex, gender, sexuality, sexual relationships, uh, and marriage. Now, 
that's us as we're beginning to explore those issues in 2018 in Ireland, in Western Europe, the global north or whatever you want to put it. So all we need to do is open up our Bibles and read about this, yeah? You agree? Talk to me about that thought, because that's precisely what most people do, isn't that right? We go, right, what does the Bible say about sex, gender, sexuality, sexual relationships and marriage? And these or something like these things uh, are what we have in mind. Anyone see a problem in that? As I sip my coffee, if you see a problem in it, shout out. Yep. What's being said here is part of the, lots of those things aren't part of what's in the Bible at all. Lots of these things weren't part of my culture growing up. Ne never mind. Never mind the Bible. Truth to be told. So our next little slide before we get into the text is that I want to look at the biblical era context uh, of of these things, and I'm looking first of all at sex and gender. First of all, I'll, I'll go through this really quickly because we want to get into the um, interesting text. No knowledge of genetics or physiology at all. None. In fact, if you lived in the 17th century and um, most of the 18th century, you would have had no knowledge of genetics or physiology at all. So part of what I've just said in terms of our description of sex is, is utterly missing from the biblical era context. No recorded knowledge of all but the most obvious intersex conditions. Uh, and I think that's self-explanatory, um, clearly. This is crucial. There was no distinction between sex and gender. Uh, gender was simply an unknown concept. It's not, you might rightly say, that gender did not exist. But it did not exist as a concept. It didn't exist as a word other than in grammar. You know, when something was male, female or, or, or neuter. Uh, those of you who may have learned Latin and Greek and, 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 or even English. Uh, back in the days when grammar was taught as a subject. Uh, outside of, of grammar and language, gender just didn't exist. And that's a hugely, hugely, hugely important point. I still remember, you know, within the last 20 years, um, someone getting very, very uh, annoyed uh, when somebody said, and, and, and what gender are you? Uh, and they replied, well, I'm not a language, so I don't have any gender. So the, the idea of gender as, as a concept, as an understanding of what it is to be human is almost utterly modern, which does not make it wrong. It just didn't exist. Uh, so whatever we read in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, whatever they were talking about, it couldn't have been, it wasn't gender uh, as we've looked at it and as we've described it. Uh, and 
Uh, I apologize, not so much in the presentation, but in, if in some of the discussion, uh, there are times when I have to be uh, fairly blunt in, in, in what we're talking about and, and descriptive. This is important for, for later on uh, to notice that castration uh, was practiced uh, as a punishment, uh, as a, an act in war retribution, uh, or, or in select forms of slavery. Let me move, before we get into the text, into continuing the biblical era context, sexuality and sexual relationships. First of all, got to be said this, uh, there was no equivalent of our modern understanding of sexuality. Uh, again, as with gender, sexuality was not a topic. It wasn't a concept. Uh, you, you can scour ancient literature until the cows come home and come back out again to be milked in the morning, uh, and you will not find any reference to sexuality. In fact, the term sexuality was first used towards the end of the 19th century in the English language. And again, it's not to say that what we perceive as sexuality didn't exist, but it did not exist as a concept or an understanding uh, of human, um, what we talked about there, innate uh, orientation or desire or, or lack of it. Now, here's, here's the thing I want you to really catch on now when we're going to be looking at the texts. What was most important for the ancient world, and for the ancient world we're really talking about everything before the Christian church began to be dominant throughout the Roman Empire, um, before and then, of course, after the Emperor Constantine. And up to that point, in different cultures, uh, in Greece, in Rome, in Egypt, in Babylon, Assyria, uh, Persia, and so on, this held true that it was the active, passive rules that were the distinguishing features of sexual practice. And here's the important thing. With adult males, always the active partner. That's the way in which what we might term sexuality was understood. So it was, were you the active participant in a sexual relationship or a sexual act? Or were you the passive person, participant, and not always participant, that's not necessarily even the right word to use, in a sexual relationship or a sexual act. Adult males had to be the active participant. Women had to be the passive participants, for want of a better term. Uh, and that was also true uh, in the upper echelons of, of, well, Greek society in particular, but in some other societies of well, uh, as well, uh, where, where um, how do you pronounce that word? Pader pederasty, I can never say it. Uh, but you get the idea, uh, particularly in, in, in Greek culture, where uh, an older man would have uh, an adolescent boy as a companion. Uh, the older man's job was to initiate the adolescent boy into 
male adulthood and very often, though not always, part of that also included a sexual relationship where the boy was the passive partner and the adult man was the active partner. Let me just run through the end of the slide and then I'll pause for a little bit of conversation. Now, when we, when we think of sexual relationships in our culture today, what are sexual relationships all about? What are they for? For us. Fun. Did somebody say fun? Good. Good. I've, I've been rather uh, more demure and said pleasure. <laughs> but it ain't much pleasure if it ain't much fun. So there we go. Okay, fun, pleasure. What else do we think of when we think of sexual relationships? Expressions of love. Love, pleasure, love. Intimacy. Intimacy. Reproduction. Reproduction or procreation. Uh, and you, it's, it's interesting, those of you who may be Anglican, if you look at the difference between the Book of Common Prayer, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, when you look at the marriage service and you look at the current one in the Church of Ireland or the Church of England, uh, they still say that, that sex is about um, love, procreation uh, and pleasure, sort of in the 1662 one, uh, but the order of their importance changes. In 1662, the primary reason for people getting married and having sex was to have children. Uh, that's now in the church, uh, present Church of Ireland usage. That's now the third bit. Uh, the first bit is love. The second bit is pleasure. The third bit is children. So even within uh, standard traditional churches, some uh, changes take place. Not so in the ancient world. It's not the case, of course, that pleasure uh, or love or procreation were always absent, uh, although it had to be said uh, that there's actually very little said about the pleasure or otherwise that women uh, may have had from their sexual relationships. But this sexual relationships distinctly and definitively were also about power, possession, protection, Continuation of the male line, continuation of the family name, economic control, peace settlements between families as well as between tribes and between nations, uh, and punishment. So male rape was, I mean, it's a difficult way to say it, was, it was a standard punishment for defeated soldiers in both Old Testament uh, and New Testament times. So we have, I was going to say reduced, maybe expanded our understanding of sexual relationships to really revolve uh, around one or more of those first three that I've mentioned, pleasure, love and procreation, not necessarily more than one, but sometimes all three might be involved. Uh, but those were just part of the mixture of what sexual relationships were for and about uh, in biblical times. And here's the thing that I think I've said before, I'm going to say it again. It was dishonorable. It was perverse. It was wrong for adults, adult males to be passive in sexual relationships. That's the big distinction. And uh, you might not be surprised to note that there's very little recorded 
uh, information on, on female sexuality, but hey-ho. Uh, the winners write history, and history isn't over yet, so the winners can still uh, rewrite history, hopefully, for, for our generation. That reference to Deuteronomy 23.19 is an interesting one uh, because it, it refers to female and male temple or shrine prostitutes uh, in very derogatory terms. And it says uh, they're not to be counted as part of society. Now, this was interesting because in other cultures of the time, um, female prostitutes, uh, if, they, if they were shrine uh, or cultic prostitutes, were afforded the same status as married women. Uh, but in Deuteronomy, uh, what chapter is again? 23, um, female prostitutes were not given full status within uh, Israelite society. Uh, and male temple prostitutes or shrine prostitutes, uh, a number of things are said about them. First of all, no uh, Israelite should become one. Uh, but if he did, the term used to describe him was a dog. Uh, and he was not to have the same rights as any other male person in Israelite society. Now, I really apologize for what I'm going to say because it, it is offensive to my ears, but we're about the, the, the truth and accuracy. Uh, the way in which this was described in one commentary was this. Uh, the term dog to describe a male prostitute was fitting because a dog... Uh, a male prostitute would bring to mind an image of a cringing animal offering its backside for penetration. Nice commentary. So, when we are looking at the Bible era culture and the culture today, how far apart are we? Any Comments on that? A million miles. Any other comments? What, what at the very least, I think we've, we, we've got to be aware of, and we've got to be aware in our conversations with others to say, you know, we cannot just read sex, gender, marriage, sexuality, uh, and just see the same words in translation used in the Bibles and go, we're talking about the same thing. Okay, marriage, uh, because people will say, but okay, that's all fine and dandy, although it's not fine and dandy, but let's look at, at you know, marriage in the Bible era. Um, surely we're, we're on solid ground here. Well, as we'll see very shortly, a very wide variety of marriages, uh, marriages, sexual relationships in the Old Testament uh, and if we, as we look at these in a few moments, we think, oh my glory, how on earth did they get to that way of thinking about marriage? We've got to remember that the context that the Old Testament was written in was so hugely different from the world that we live in today. Uh, the, the, if you went to Syria um, or parts of Iraq uh, under the um, so-called Islamic State occupation, that's closer to the world of the Old Testament than sitting in this lovely room in Carrickfergus. Uh, or it's like a gang turf war where, where constantly everybody was under threat 
all the time, individually and communally. So just in case we're tempted to think, oh, good Lord, you know, how, how could those Old Testament people have been, how could they have been as wretched as they were? If we were living in their context, we probably would have thought what they were thinking and doing was, was fine. Marriage. Huge range of marriages in the Old Testament. Some were love marriages. Almost deserves uh, a cheer because um, that's about the only thing to cheer about. Almost all of them were arranged marriages, which is not quite the same as the next thing. Many of them were enforced marriages. Some were honour marriages, where the honour of a family was deemed to to have been at stake. Um, In some cases, um, a, a woman could be raped by a man, and then in order to save the honour, not of the woman, but of the woman's family, the man had to marry the woman, having raped her. Uh, And then one would hope, of course, that lots of children would be born uh, throughout that happy marriage. Uh, War brides were part of going to war and plundering and pillaging was that soldiers had the right then to take the women of of a city, um, and they had the right to rape them, uh, but they they also had had the right to marry them uh, and that happened in a number of cases. Uh, polygamy, uh, which is what, what, what it says, which was clearly common in the Old Testament. Uh, Leveret marriages, uh, which was really all about the male line continuing. Um, so Steve and I were brothers, um, and uh, I was married, and I died before my wife had any children. Um, Steve had a legal obligation to marry uh, my wife, Uh, and to have sexual relationships with her until a child was born, until a male child was born. And then that male child did not belong to Steve, it belonged to me, legally. Clearly an unusual legal understanding of marriage. Uh, Slave rape, uh, where a slave um, could be given uh, to a a master and then that person had the right to have sex with the slave. The most famous example perhaps in the Old Testament, anyone? Abraham, Hagar. Uh, and the story is just bounced over, glossed over so quickly uh, th- that we hardly notice it. And, and I've certainly never ever he- heard a single sermon uh, that, that talked about uh, the, the husband and wife colluding in the rape uh, of their servant which is exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. Sarah said, I can't have any children. Have my uh, female servant uh, so that we can have children through her. Uh, and Hagar, the, the, the servant, had how much say in the, in the matter? None. And then you recall the story. Um, Hagar uh, was certainly in our understanding, and correctly so, I believe, uh, was then raped by Abraham. Uh, a child was born and Sarah said, get out. So not only was she, she raped, she was made destitute and thrown out into the wilderness. So I think we just need to be careful uh, when we're talking about um, biblical understandings of marriage. Uh, in, incest, where um, there were cases of um, people who were 
closely uh, related having um, sexual relationships, though not uh, necessarily marriages, uh, and children being born, uh, a very famous case we will come up, uh, we'll look at it in a few moments' time. Uh, concubinage, great word that, isn't it? Uh, which meant uh, you're almost a wife. Um, you know, and David and Solomon, whether these figures were inflated, uh, one hopes both for the women and the poor men's stamina that the figures were indeed inflated, but they were meant to have like 500 wives and a 1,000 concubines. Um, well, there you go. And here's a crucially important thing. Adultery was a crime. Why? Because it dishonored the husband. Why did it dishonor the husband? Because the wife was the husband's property, possession. Now, lest I'm going, you think this is going too far, uh, I want to say this seems ludicrous to us today. At least I hope it seems ludicrous to us today. But if we were living in the society that the Israelites were living in and the rest of the nations were living in uh, 3,000 years ago, we couldn't have seen that this was ludicrous. That's the thing. We couldn't have. Any more that if we don't blow the world, the kingdom come. In a 1,000 years' time, people will look at Irish and British people uh, in the in 2018 and go how did they not see that that was ludicrous how could they not see that that was obviously wrong and I can't give you an example of what they will consider to be obviously wrong because if I could it wouldn't be obviously wrong so which I just need to put a little you know <laughs> semicolon there it would be appalling for any of these things to be, apart from the love marriages, to be introduced into our culture today. We can see that, but nobody, it's not that anybody was saying anything against this 3,000 years ago. It's not that you can find some other culture that said, whoa, 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 uh, we can't have arranged marriages or um, we, we, we can't have a man having the, the right to have sex with his female servants and so on. Okay, very quickly, uh, in the New Testament, is the old, that was the Old Testament uh, context. The New Testament, uh, monogamous marriage was the ideal. Uh, although polygamy was permitted uh, among the Gentile churches, um, one of the points that Paul says when he's talking about elders and deacons or the writer of the pastoral epistles, if it wasn't Paul, uh, he said uh, elders and deacons must be uh, the husband of only one wife. Uh, and I'm sure you have heard people preach on that and say, well, that means that, that um, they mustn't have remarried after their wives had died. Yeah, of course, that's what it meant. Uh, you must be the husband of only one wife meant exactly what it said. Uh, that, of course, uh, polygamous relationships were still around in the Hellenistic world where the, the, the churches were being planted by Paul and others. Um, and we can, if we had time, we could look at the context of that. But lest we are tempted to say Paul was a, a complete male chauvinist dinosaur. Actually, if you read what Paul wrote in some of his letters in the context of his day, and we'll see this towards the end of our, our discussion this, this evening, he was actually light years ahead of many other people in his culture. 
So again, the danger, the danger is that we lift up the Bible and we think what we're talking about is there. There's also a danger that that we uh, condemn the Bible writers in their context because they're not living in 2018. We, We can't go the other way and do that either. At least I don't think we should. And lastly, we're almost there at the text. Divorce. Uh, fell short of the ideal, but as we saw last week, was permissible in a number of different contexts. And there we've got, you can look at those up, Mark 10, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, before we look at the texts, here's how we're going to do it. Are you ready for the texts? Yes. But that bit's important. Because we can't look at the texts unless we've done all of that first. Here's our methodology for this evening. We're going to look first of all at... How close to the original message can we get? So you pick up your, and the, uh, in, in the text, in the slides that are about to follow, I, I put a number of the texts up uh, either in the New International Version of the Bible or the King James Authorised Version or both. Because in discussions of this nature, those are the two Bibles that most people will be using. Uh, in, in, in these discussions. So how close, when we pick up our NIVs or AVs, how close to the original message can we get? And frankly, we're not going to get beyond that point in very many conversations because we've got to look at all that stuff. We looked at the historical context, literary context, all of that stuff, the accuracy of the translation. Then we're going to look at, is this passage directly relevant to the topic we're looking at, sexuality and gender? Or really, are we looking at this and we're trying to extrapolate something out of it? Is the passage prescriptive or descriptive? We looked at this last week. Uh, Is it really saying this is what ought to be or just describing what is? And that's crucial. Is it definitive or contextual? Is it saying this is the, 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 the truth for all times and in all places, or is this what was said to be right in a particular context? Is it attempting to be comprehensive? Again, is is it saying, actually, this is all there is to be said in this topic of importance. Everything else is just detail. Or is it just one facet of the, the, the topic in mind? And essentially what I'm saying is this, that the higher the score, in other words, The closer we get to the original message, the more directly relevant it is, the more prescriptive, definitive, and comprehensive it is, the more we can use it in a discussion about sexuality. You with me? How many texts do you think score highly? From what we've said so far. Well, we shall see. We shall see. But I hope you're thinking, good Lord, shall we go home now? Because the con- everything I've looked at is so different already. We have got to be very, very sure of our ground before we say this action or this relationship uh, or this way of being is wrong or sinful or ungodly. With me? Got to be really careful. Those are big things to say. 
And we've got to be darn sure of ourselves before we say them. First text, way. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Here we go. Uh, NIV and AV, I'll read it in the, the uh, uh, NIV version. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Well, there you go. Pretty open and closed there, isn't it? Uh, does that not echo the phrase that um, some people often use, politicians uh, and, and certain televangelists and so on? God made who and whom, not whom and whom. God made, not Adam and Steve. Sorry, Steve, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, and th- there we are. That, that's, that's it. Well, let's have a look using our, um, our analysis. The original message, okay, uh, what we've got to say here is that uh, image and likeness have sort of uncertain meanings, but apart from that, the, the, the words used in Hebrew are pretty similar to what we're looking at here. Uh, what about the direct relevance? Well, uh, the, the context suggests that this is certainly relevant in terms of the creation of our species. Uh, because this comes at the end of the creation of you know, the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars, other species, and then comes uh, the human species. So Genesis uh, 1, 26, 27 are relevant for that. But here's the really interesting bit. The prescriptive, descriptive bit. Prescriptive is this is how it should be. Descriptive is simply saying, well, this is what we observe. The first bit is God said, let us make man, mankind, humankind, whatever, in our own image and after our likeness. That's verse 26. Verse 26, uh, and God made them, um, whatever it was that it was, uh, male and female. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 1 in all of the bits that that, that go through that creation narrative, you get... First of all, a prescriptive statement of what ought to be. And then you get an observed statement of how that was seen to work out. The first bit is always prescriptive. The second bit is descriptive. Prescriptive, let there be light. Descriptive, whatever it was that the light, uh, uh, sun and moon and stars or, or, or whatever. Um, let, let the waters above the, you know, be, be separated and then a description of what that looked like although it was a rather curious description the important thing for us to, to note here if I just go back to the actual passage was so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them that is descriptive that's what the author uh, of Genesis chapter 1 observed That's a statement of what is, not necessarily a statement of what ought to be. Are you with me in that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, that's important because there's a whole area of Christian theology called natural theology or natural law, which says, and it started uh, with Augustine and then went into uh, the Middle Ages uh, through people like Aquinas and so on. Uh, and, and they said, well, you, you look at what is and then you take what is and then you build on top of that 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 really tells you how things ought to be. 
So, for example, they would have said, uh, you look at a woman, she has a womb. Uh, you look at a man, uh, he has, in their terminology, seed. So the only reason for people copulating is that the seed will enter the womb and children will ensue. Now, you see what's going there? It's the cart before the horse, if you like. It's saying we are observing something, and from what we observe, we will then extrapolate from that that that's the way it was designed to be, and it can only be for that purpose. Uh, and, of course, uh, apart from some parts of the church, generally speaking, that, that's not an acceptable way uh, to, to look at things because it doesn't really make any sense. So in Genesis 1, where people say, but doesn't it say God made them male and female, uh, therefore that means that that's God's command. No, it isn't. The first bit is God's command. Let's make the human race. The second bit is what the writer observed as an outworking of that. And that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah? Do you see why that's important? And yet, it's something uh, that is often not not recognized. Um, Is it uh, definitive or contextual? Well, God's creation and desire to create the human race, uh, well, that's pretty definitive. That's what God is in the business of, uh, creating or stroke recreating uh, humanity uh, in God's own image. Um, Hard to know about the second bit. Um, Is that contextual um, or is that a sort of definitive thing? At the very least, it's an open question. Is it comprehensive or is it limited? Well, it's certainly comprehensive uh, regarding human dignity. Human beings are made in the image of God. That's the prescriptive bit. Uh, But it's rather limited regarding an understanding of, of human biology and anything else. Uh, And a little warning here about pressing this passage too far. Anybody know what Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 says? It says, God gave all the fruit and vegetables in the earth for meat for human beings. If you take that to be prescriptive, we should all be vegans. Now, maybe we should, but not based on that verse. So I I remember saying, do you remember Steve actually said that in the class that you you, you were in, uh, that if we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 1 in all of those things and take it in a sort of a literal way, then that's it. No more meat, no more fish. It's veggies for us from now on, uh, and um, no more milk or eggs or or, or any of that. Yep. (laughs) But I'm not aware of anyone who who seriously says, based on that verse of Genesis 1, uh, which is a descriptive thing, that everybody who wishes to be godly must be a vegan, and not being a vegan is sinful. And yet people are happy to take Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 and build that sort of case out of it. Okay, bear that in mind. Yes? The person writing this. Yes. Oh, well, uh, sorry, the the, the comment was the person writing this wasn't there. Uh, 
Yes, we, we could look at what type of writing Genesis chapter 1 is. Um, and, and certainly I, w- I would want to say, and uh, m- most biblical scholars, and I'm not a biblical scholar, but most biblical scholars would say, uh, this is, this is a, a, a dramatic poem. This is not a description of what took place in six days, literal or otherwise. But that's a bigger discussion uh, that we need to have a look at. And we looked at that last week to an extent about thinking what sort of writing is it. Let me move on to the next one. Genesis 2, 21-24. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to cut off that comment, but there's so much to, to get through. Um, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and this is like sort of Tarzan of the apes, you know, woman. (laughs) Here, come on, use a bit of ingenuity there, for goodness sake. Uh, For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And there's the authorized version of it as well, which is pretty much the same sort of thing. Let's have a quick analysis of that. Let's have a look at the original message. Well, the first thing I think we've got to note here is that this text is part of what's known as uh, an origins myth. Uh, All the countries and nations and cultures around Israel at this time, they all had their origin myths explaining how certain things came to be. Uh, it was a little bit like that, looking around going, well, this is the way things are. Why are they like this? And then they would tell uh, very often a very important and, and deep myth that tried to explain that things are the way they are because this. Uh, the primary message in Genesis 2, is the the primacy. This explains uh, for the people of that time why human beings had primacy over animals and why men had primacy over women. That's the point of it. Because in these cultures, clearly, human beings took primacy over animals. And in those cultures, as we've already seen, uh, men uh, took primacy over women. Uh, And then we have that strange little bit at the end of it um, that says, for this reason, and it's almost like a commentary on the commentary, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother uh, and cleave or join to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And that's a really strange commentary. Because in Hebrew culture, It was the women who left their families, not men. And I've sort of scoured through literature in this, and nobody really knows why this is there. It's deeply counter-cultural, because it was women who left their families, uh, not not men. Uh, And and the terms, you know, uh, leave and cleave uh, are covenant, are sort of legal terms. And then there's another interesting little bit uh, where it says, uh, the man will leave his father and mother and will cleave or be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Uh, But the word that says uh, that the man will be united is a strange word. It means that the two will come together, but they will remain distinct. 
but they will become one flesh, which is a reference to sexual union. Now, that's sort of interesting because that's not what most Christian churches preach about marriage, is it? The one flesh bit is always made to say that in marriage, a man and a woman come together and they become one new person. Well, maybe that is so, ideally, but don't base it on Genesis chapter 2. Because what actually is said there is the man and woman will come together, they'll join together, but they will remain distinct. And they will physically be united. So again, what I'm trying to point out here is that when we look at these passages that seem to be very straightforward, actually they're not really as straightforward as, as they might seem. Uh, the wider Genesis 2, 3 thing is, of course, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Steve as well in the Garden of Eden, perhaps. Uh, I just want to point this at, uh, at, at this point because it becomes important later. Uh, in Hebrew culture, nakedness was a shameful thing. It was shameful to be seen naked, but it was equally shameful to observe nakedness outside of sexual union. So if you think in in different bits of the Old Testament, you know David seeing Bathsheba, the shame in that instance was not hers, it was his. Um, The lovely, one way of looking at this, you know the bit in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if if, uh, somebody wants to take your outer garment, give them your undergarment as well. And you go, what was that about? Well, what it meant was Jesus was saying, if someone is, tr- is, is trying to shame you by taking your outer garment, your cloak, shame them by standing in front of them naked. Because it is shameful to observe someone's nakedness. It's a lovely little twist uh, in, 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 in that passage, uh, as many of Jesus' stories were. So what... what was being said in in that original passage? Uh, Well, it was a passage that tried to explain why in that culture humans were above animals and men were above women. And then it gets, frankly, quite difficult to understand. Its relevance? Well, clearly it was an explanatory story. It was relevant to the community of origin because it explained Uh, their culture and their experience at the time. But I think we've got to extrapolate from that with care. Clearly the story is descriptive. The commentary bit is sort of prescriptive. This is why this happens. But since no one quite knows what it is that it's describing, uh, again, we've got to be very careful before we take this verse and say, I want to use this in an argument to about your sexuality, your sexual practice. Is it definitive or contextual? Well, again, um, it's set within a particular community. It's the context of that society and it trying to understand itself, um, although it sets it then within uh, a wider context of of creation. Um, And clearly, in terms of being comprehensive or limited, it's limited to some aspects of relationships between men and women, and it could be said between um, human beings and animals. It it doesn't set out to be a comprehensive statement. I'm going to run through these, and then I'll take 
Uh, I'll pause for some questions and comments because we're getting into some of the big ones now. Sodom and Gomorrah. We're getting there now. We're getting to the, we're getting to the juicy bits that I was promising uh, last week. Um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah um, is a lengthy story. Uh, it actually begins in Genesis 13, but that would be too much to ask anyone to read. You'll be pleased to know I'm not actually putting all of this on the screen. Uh, but the, the story itself goes from Genesis 18, uh, chapter 20, to Genesis 19, chapter 28. Uh, we're all aware of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, aren't we? Yep. Or are we? Well, we shall see. If, if, if there are bits of the story that you don't know... Um, we can stop for clarification. The story is referred to at least 35 times in the rest of the Bible. So this is not a light touch thing. Uh, so we can't just go, oh, Solomon Gomorrah's got nothing to do with anything. Uh, actually, it's a very important story in terms of the rest of the Bible. For example, it, it, it's mentioned, um, well, Genesis 13 is where the story starts. Uh, Ezekiel 16, which is quite important as we'll see, Second Peter uh, and Jude uh, are the New Testament passages. Uh, Jesus refers to it as, as well in, in Matthew's Gospel. But very often, um, Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 7 are passages that people who um, would want to say that all same-sex relationships are sinful will, will quote, along with the original passage. With me so far on that? Okay, let's see if we can get to the original message as we do a little bit of an analysis. Now, how would you describe the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? What what sort of literature is it? Is it a poem? Definitely not. It's a story, it's a narrative. I like the diplomatic core over to my right who have definitely hit that. What sort of story and what sort of narrative is it? Well, I'm not meaning so much the meaning of it, but yes, we will go there and it certainly is that. Uh, But what type of story is it? And a lot of this is predicated on it being what? History. Uh, And so people have set out to try to find, you know, the pillar of salt and, uh, and, and so on. Well, if it's history, it's a strange sort of history. As we've seen, history was strange in those days anyway. But the account is, either we could call it a myth or a legend, Uh, A myth is something that's used to describe, to get across an important truth, a bit like a parable. Uh, A legend is something that that is built around an historical happening or person, but there are lots of explanatory and additional bits put in. Uh, And why do I say it's a myth or a legend? Because it starts off with God saying, I've heard people are saying bad things are going on in Sodom. I must go down and see if that's right. Now, how, how does that tie in with your concept of God? Not so godlike. Not so godlike. 
I don't think any of us today have a concept of God that says, right, I hear there's strange things going on in Carrick Fergus tonight. A group of strange people listening to an even stranger man talking about strange topics. I've heard that, so I better, you know, beam down and see for myself. And it's not as if the people in the Old Testament didn't have that big image of God who knows everything. But this is a story that starts off God heard bad things were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and said, well, I better find out if what I'm hearing is true. Do you think God would already have known? Which is an indication of a story. It's, it's a, I don't know. If, if it makes it easier for people, we can call it a parable. Uh, if other people want to call it a legend, we could have said maybe the original bit was once upon a time God heard, uh, or whatever way you want to put it. Which is not to say that this that, that there wasn't a city called Sodom and a city called Gomorrah, and that they were destroyed in some natural disaster, uh, and and that was used to teach the Israelites something. That's not to say that wasn't the case, but the story clearly is not historical in the way that we understand it. Now, throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with wickedness. Absolutely right. Wickedness. That's where the Genesis 13 bit was, where it said Lot went and lived uh, in in Sodom, um, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were extremely wicked. So all, all the way back from then, their wickedness was obvious. They were a bad lot. But what sort of badness was in them? What sort of bad lot were they? It's unclear. First of all, from the rest of the scriptures. Ezekiel, Second Peter, uh, and Jude that I referred to all say specifically Sodom and Gomorrah were bad because of... Anyone? Yes? Well, yes, that, 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 that was generalized true. That, that, that's right. But they, then they get more specific as well. That's absolutely so. Anyone know what the Ezekiel bit says? Not quite, Garth. The, the lack of hospitality is, is a quite modern translation that's been put on it. It's not quite that. Uh, and in absolute fairness to looking at what biblical scholars say, that one is a little tenuous. It's a little tenuous. Uh, okay, well, here's, here's what it says. Ezekiel says, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin or sins were pride and neglect of the poor. That was their wickedness. In Jude, it says sexual immorality, but doesn't say what the sexual immorality was. Or sorry, um, uh, Second Peter, it is extreme immorality, but it doesn't say what the extreme immorality was. And lawlessness. Well, there we go. Do, doing what is right in, in their own eyes. Lawlessness. And Jude, which is a very strange book. Anybody read Jude recently? Yeah. You did? Every day. 
But it's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual book, isn't it? Yes, the, the translation there is, for, is fornication. Um, the, um, the word that was used we're going to be looking at when we get to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So we'll, we'll look at what the, 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 the word um, usually means. Um, and Jude, Jude has a story of um, Satan and the archangel Michael fighting over the body of Moses for its burial. So it's an unusual book that contains stories that uh, aren't found anywhere else in, in the Bible. But what Jude says is the um, sin or the evil uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality and going after, and then it uses a term that is difficult to translate. It can mean other flesh, different flesh, one's neighbor's flesh. And whether that gets us any closer to what was going on that made Sodom and Gomorrah evil, we could discuss. So it's clear that Sodom and Gomorrah are evil. From Ezekiel, the evil nature of the evil was pride and neglect of the poor. Second Peter, it's extreme immorality and lawlessness. In Jude, it's sexual immorality. Uh, in the King James Version, Authorised Version, uh, fornication. Uh, and going after uh, heterosarchs, other different one's neighbor's flesh. Now, let's really look at the passage itself. Oh, sorry. Let me go back. Now, in the Genesis story itself, uh, there are two things mentioned. The first one in, in Genesis chapter 13 is that it, it was full of great wickedness. And that's a generalized thing. Just, they were wicked. And this was mentioned in Genesis 13 when Lot first settled among them. And then the specific instance in the passage that we're looking at is the attempted gang rape of Lot's male guests. And if you read the story, that's what was going on. Uh, these two angelic figures that Lot and the men in Sodom and Gomorrah didn't realize were angelic figures. Uh, they, they come to the, the city. Lot sees them and says, come and stay in my house. Uh, the, they say, no, no, it's okay. We'll stay in the square, the public square at night. We're fine. And he goes, no, no, don't do that. Come into my house. Uh, then all the men of the city, young and old, beat down, uh, beat on, on Lot's house and say, bring these men out. And the terminology used is clear. Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Now, from what we've looked at before, what might be going on there? Treating them like women? Treating them, like women, treating them as, a, as an enemy? Wishing to punish them. And Garth, here's the hospitality bit. It wasn't just that they didn't make people cups of tea when they came in. Uh, the standard law of those cities would be that if someone brought in an alien, they had to have permission to do so. Uh, and Lot had broken the social mores and taboo 
uh, taboos of the city by inviting these people into his home, aliens into his home, without the city elders or the city leaders giving permission. So uh, hospitality rules were sort of different from the way in which we might think they are. So according to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot had done something wrong. He had given shelter to these two aliens. Now, it is not the case, I'm, I'm, in, in all probability, that every single man in the city uh, was, was going to engage in, in rape of, of the two men, because there's no idea how many men that there were there. But they were going to be ritually raped uh, as a punishment for, Lot, for Lot's sin. And there's a little indication uh, coming up, and we'll see in the next slide, uh, that it was really Lot's sin, Lot's wrongdoing, that had disturbed and upset uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is, for example, no indication that when Lot moved to Sodom and Gomorrah that he was raped, or that every male, every man that came into the place uh, was raped by all the men of the city. There's no indication this was their normal you know, uh, modus operandi. But Lot had broken the cultural and security norms, and this was an act of punishment, an act of dishonor, an act of humiliation, uh, which, of course, was hugely evil and hugely wicked. Now, what relevance does that story have for us today? We can extrapolate, but we've got to do it with great care, I think. That's the story. These were very wicked people. They were lawless. So they were, you know, by and large, a pretty wild, raucous and mad lot. But they had certain rules. Lot broke the rules and they were going to punish these men um, by indulging in gang rape. Extrapolate. What's your preaching? What's the lesson? Yep. So the, 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 basic, the basic thing surely is um, gang rape is not a good thing. It is a very, very wicked thing. And lawless societies are societies that are likely to result in these sorts of terrible things happening. What is a huge extrapolation from this passage? That that's got anything to do with same-sex relationships as we know them today? Yes. It's a, it, it, to say this is condemning same-sex relationships is the same as taking another example of rape from the Old Testament and the New Testament saying heterosexual relationships are wrong. It's a huge extrapolation to go from uh, male gang rape in the cultural milieu of that time, which was uh, deliberately dishonoring uh, and, and a punishment, to say that is talking about uh, same, committed same-sex or any form of same-sex relationship, consensual same-sex relationship. Is it prescriptive or descriptive? Well, it's prescriptive against evil. It's clearly saying... Evil is wrong, but it's describing one particular instance of evil. Is it definitive or contextual? Well, it's definitive, in, again, speaking against evil, but it's clearly contextual for one particular form or type of evil. 
And let me just uh, outline this contextual thing again. In the context of that time, uh, Lot is said to be a righteous man. Isn't that right? That was why the angels or heavenly figures were going down to Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place. Because Lot was a righteous man. Second Peter talks about this righteous man who couldn't bear the evil that he was seeing around him. But this righteous man said to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't rape my male guests. Take my two daughters and gang rape them. Is that righteous in our context? What is it in our context? Well, it's beyond evil. <laughs> it's, 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 it's incredible. You, you might have seen, if, if Lot had said, don't harm my guests, take me. But that wasn't the point that they were trying to, uh, to make. And so the idea that a righteous man said, please gang rape my two daughters instead of gang raping these two men. An understanding of what is righteous is clearly contextual, yeah? And again, to take this very contextual story and to make it into something that is universally true about same-sex relationships. Uh, you know, people can say whatever they want about same-sex relationships. It's a free world. But it, it's... Um, irrational to base those comments on this particular passage. Uh, coincidentally, in the next chapter or so, or the next chapter, um, Lot is, is dying without any male heirs, and his two daughters say, uh, let's take turns at getting the old man drunk, and when he's drunk and he doesn't know who's coming into him in the middle of the night, we'll each go in uh, we'll have sex with our father. That was the incest bit that I was referring to earlier. We'll have sex with our father, and then his line will continue, and that's what they did, and they did. Uh, and it's just noted. It's not said to have been a wrong thing to do or a right thing to do. It is just a descriptive thing. But clearly, understanding of what sexual relationships are about were very, very different, weren't they? And again, just a little warning, I, I, I'm not aware of anybody who says, well, yeah, yeah, that's a practice. Need, need more of that in the church. Not aware of it. And yet, you know, if, if we're going to say one thing, we've got to say the other. I, I would suggest. Uh, is it comprehensive or limited? Well, clearly it's limited to a, an example of a particular evil. And the, evil was, uh, the evils were lawlessness, uh, and we know what lawless societies do. They do what was going on in, in Rwanda, as Steve says. They do what was going on in, in the Balkans. They do what was, what was going on in um, the middle, right across Europe in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, what was going on in, in Colombia, what's going on in Mexico. Uh, with drug wars, lawless societies end up doing terrible, terrible, evil things. Uh, just to, to try to put this in this context, I met a Colombian woman on, on the train to Stansted a few weeks ago. Somebody thought there was a bomb, on, on, there was an unclaimed bag on, on, on the train. Uh, and so people were moved, we moved to the front carriage. 
uh, and the three of us that were in the front carriage ended up, uh, I was from uh, Northern Ireland, she was from Colombia and the man was from Russia. And we thought, right, well, we all know something about <laughs> bombs and terrorism. And we were the only three unfazed people on the train. <laughs> Here we go, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, we, we, we got, we got ch chatting. Um, and uh, how many of you have seen the, the, um, the, the series, is it Narcos? Narcos. Um, she was involved in one of the real-life incidents in that uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, and I haven't, uh, the bombing of a, a shopping mall or whatever it was. But anyway, she got talking about all of this and talking about the peace process in Ireland, the peace process in Colombia, and she had no time for the peace process uh, because she said our society was so lawless that when FARC took over a village where a friend of mine lived, uh, they called at her door, said, here's your appointment card. You have to come to the school tomorrow at 3 o'clock and every Monday at 3 o'clock, uh, which she did, and every Monday at 3 o'clock she was gang-raped by the soldiers of FARC. Uh, and not just gang-raped by people's bodies, but by implements as well. And that went on for 18 months. That's what lawless societies do. That's the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea of a gang rape taking place is what ensues. And, and so Sodom and Gomorrah, it's quite right that they are bywords for evil and wickedness and sin. But no relevance to our discussion on sexuality at all, I would suggest. But people are free to disagree. Let's move on to the next one. Only 75 more to go. Leviticus 18. Aha, Leviticus 18. Verse 22, and this is echoed in Leviticus 20, 13. And again, I apologize. I can't do all the, uh, the, the Bible passages that, that might be relevant. New International Version, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Authorized Version, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Straightforward. No need to mess around with Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah? That's it, Steve. That's my talk finished for tonight. <laughs> but there might be more to it than that. There might be more to it. Let's look at this in the same analysis that we've done with, with others. The original message. Now, you really, I've got to have your concentration on this one, folks. This, this is difficult. But it's such an important topic, as we were looking at last week, that it's worth looking at this in a way that might be hard work, but it's important. The original message, let's look at it again. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. If we just pick up our Bibles and read that in a straightforward way, it's pretty clear. At the very least, male homosexual relationships are detestable. No, no, but just from this, just from what this says, that's what I'm saying. If we just read it, that's what people say, and that's how they read it. Isn't that right? We already have an idea, mind you, that having sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman might have meant something different in terms of the culture of the time, but there's more to it than that. Now, the original message, 
actually, it's really darn difficult to discover. This is one of the most difficult verses in the Old Testament to translate. This is what the Hebrew text says. Anyone who can speak Hebrew can have a go at it, but it says, well, it says what it, it's written on the screen, something like, with Zachar lo tishak mishkve isha tueve he. Literally, literally, and you, know, you go and look at different interlinear things, if you like, or whatever. Literally, it says, and with the male, you shall not lie, lyings of a woman. I've put the down bit there in that at least it makes a little bit more sense, sort of. If we say the verse says, and with the male, you shall not, you shall not lie down, lyings down of a woman. But the down bit isn't actually there. With the male, you shall not lie, lyings of a woman. So that's the verse we now pick up in our Bibles and read. Not this one. Not you shall, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. What we now read is, and with a male you shall not lie lyings of a woman. What does that verse now mean? Yes, on the, based on the knowledge that we've already looked at, a man should not be a passive partner. If we didn't even know that, and you simply read in your Bible, and with the male you shall not lie lyings of a woman. What does it mean? No None. <laughs> no idea. You think, whoa, lyings of a woman. And it might be no surprise that in fact... Throughout the rabbinical period and um, uh, other Jewish periods of literature and so on, and some Christian commentaries, people have looked at it and said, what does that mean? What are the lyings of a woman? And some have have said, well, it it means um, you shouldn't. And and woman can also mean wife, Um, you know, a man should not have sex with a man uh, in his wife's bed. And you think, no, surely it doesn't mean that. The lyings of a woman? Well, remember last week we looked at our friend the Septuagint. Do you remember that? Which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament church used, yeah? And here is the Septuagint. Kai meta arsenos u koi me sese koine gunaikos bedel uma kar esten. And with a male, you shall not lie, bed of a woman. For it is detestable. Now, actually, that doesn't bring us much further, does it? But that was the Greek translation. With a male you shall not lie, bed of a woman, for it is detestable. So however we, you can see this hermeneutical process I was talking about. 
Clearly, some message was trying to be imparted. These were the words chosen. But the poor old translators, whether they're Greek or English, are going, what does this mean? Now, we have a standard translation in our English Bibles because that was a translation that was um, settled on in the first English Bible and how and why we need to go back a few centuries and ask. But here's the thing, and and Jenny's point becomes a a little bit more relevant, uh, or the point is relevant, clearer. The Hebrew word lyings of a woman is a word that's used to refer uh, to women submitting to sex. The usual word for sexual intercourse uh, is shechubeth, and remember it's dishonorable for men to be sexually submissive. So sort of what Genesis 18.22 so far is saying is, and with a male, you shall not lie, lie down, in the way a woman lies down submissively. With me? (laughs) This is just men. This is just men. (laughs) We haven't even got to what women can do. (laughs) As far as I'm aware, it doesn't mention trapezes or anything like that or anything anything more interesting. And... uh, Here we come. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. <laughs> the term translated detestable or abomination is uh, toeva, which is used to mean cultural or ritual uncleanness or something that's taboo. Rather than the Hebrew word zima, which denotes something that's intrinsically wrong. Now, in absolute fairness, uh, toeva is also, can also be used to mean gen- something that is generally wrong. But in this context, which is the context, as we'll see in a minute, of all these laws that separate Israel from the nations around them, it's to do with taboo. So abomination is a very strong word, isn't it? Uh, and detestable is only slightly less strong a word. But actually, the word we should be using is it's taboo which is actually quite a weak word, but not if you were living in Israel at the time. Something that was taboo was as strong a word as something that was evil and sinful because that was the nature of the culture of, of the time. we move on a little bit further. The relevance. The text's relevance is similar to other texts outlining Hebrew faith, culture, and Uh, morality the same general passages talk about food, clothing, the Sabbath uh, family punishment I've written down family punishment because in the uh, in the same uh, let me just check yep Uh, in the same section of, of Leviticus it says that a child who dishonors his or her mother or father should be put to death. Why? Because it's toyeva, an abomination. Uh, it was an abomination to eat shellfish. It was an abomination to uh, wear clothing made of two different types of material. 
These were all really strong taboos. But whatever we do, whatever this means, whatever this means, uh, it sits alongside all of those other things. And we need to think carefully about how we extrapolate from whatever this passage means to today in the context of these other things. Is, the, um, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Well, clearly it's prescriptive. It's, not, it's making no bones about what's right and what's wrong. Is it definitive or contextual? The, the context is Hebrew communal law in distinction from the surrounding pagan customs. Uh, and this is set in a long list of forbidden sexual relationships. Although it's strangely incomplete. It doesn't mention that it's wrong for a father to have, daughter, uh, father to have sex with his daughter. Now, maybe because that was just obvious, but in this long list of things. Uh, it also permits polygamy. Uh, or certainly can be understood to permit polygamy. Uh, and then it also includes a prohibition on sex during menstruation. And then, interestingly, as well as uh, sacrifice of children at a pagan shrine. And so th- this verse comes straight after uh, saying, you, you mustn't sacrifice your children at the altar of Molech. Uh, And so the idea of shrine or cultic worship is brought into view as well. Uh, Is uh, is this a comprehensive text referring to same-sex relationships? Well, the text seems to refer to a particular act. But precisely what that act is, is unclear. When you look at the Hebrew, it's just not clear what this is talking about. And that's why I was saying earlier on, before we say uh, this scripture definitively says, in this instance, same-sex relationships are wrong, sinful, or whatever, we've got to be absolutely certain that's what it's saying. But in fact, it's a really, really unclear passage. It might mean, might mean when you try to tie the cultural thing and the fact that child sacrifice at a pagan shrine was mentioned earlier, it could mean something like this. It's taboo for a man to submit to sex with another man as part of ritual worship, as was the case in all the surrounding pagan cultures. Do you remember that comment earlier in Deuteronomy where it said men should not become male prostitutes in a temple? So it could mean something like that. But the strongest I could put it is to say it might mean something like that. Or it might mean something that quite frankly is just lost to us. But whatever it was, it was something that was taboo in Hebrew culture. Just as interestingly earlier on in the Genesis story, um, it was taboo for uh, Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. So the word, you know, is used in that sort of context. Um, And, of course, there's all that stuff in the New Testament about, um, you know, Paul saying to Peter that he was wrong in refusing to eat with Gentile Christians because that was taboo. 
So whatever this means, and frankly, nobody can be certain what it means, it was something to do with Hebrew culture and their distinctiveness, setting them apart from the people around them. But what the particular act that was taboo was, it's just unclear. And yet this is one of the knockdown texts, isn't it? In very many discussions when people talk about sexuality. Let me move on quickly. Going to do this one very quickly, Mark 10, uh, Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus is saying, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one uh, separate. Uh, Sometimes people say, but it's not just Genesis. Jesus said it. Uh, Yes, Jesus did say it, but I'll go through this very quickly. But uh, the original message was in a discussion about divorce where Jesus was opposing a lax interpretation of divorce which permitted men to divorce their wives for trivial reasons. One of them was if she speaks too loudly in the morning. I'm actually with that one, to be honest. But apart from that, although in absolute truth, my wife threatened to divorce me this morning for speaking too loudly. Uh, No, too too much knowledge, too much information for you to bear. There was a big discussion at the time of Jesus between two different schools of rabbis. Um, Could you divorce your wife only for really, really serious things or not at all? Or for any reason, if, if if your wife no longer pleased you, could you divorce her? And that's the context of this where Jesus was talking about first century Palestinian Jewish marriage law. That's the context there. I'll just go through those uh, very quickly. Um, Clearly, it's got nothing to do with gender and gender roles. It's got nothing to do with uh, male and female. It's a discussion about divorce. And as we saw last week, um, the Mark's version of what Jesus said was then fleshed out by Matthew. And then Paul brought in further grounds for divorce. So even that isn't a comprehensive statement. Just two to go. Two biggies. Here are the two big New Testament ones. Romans 1, 24 to 27. Therefore God gave them over in the, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, at least female sexuality gets a look in at last. Uh, In in the middle of uh, a very male-dominated culture, women are at least mentioned. Uh, This is one of the two big New Testament passages where people will say, it's clear. It's clear what's being said. Well, let's have a look. And remember, we need to be clear, I'm suggesting, in all of this before we use any of this uh, to suggest that individual people or their lives or who and what they are uh, are wrong or sinful. Okay, put it in its context. The original message 
uh, is part of Paul's argument that all people have turned from God and need forgiveness through Christ. That's what he's doing essentially in the first six chapters of uh, what we call the first six chapters of Romans. Of course, they weren't divided into chapters. Huge argument. And he's saying, everybody, well, what's the famous verse? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, which uh, is absolutely right in my opinion. No doubt about it. Uh, my hand would be the first up uh, to admit all of that. So that's the argument Paul is making. Everybody has sinned. He then illustrates it in the six chapters by highlighting different examples. Crucial. He illustrates it by highlighting specific examples, ways in which we can see how people have fallen short of God's glory and need forgiveness. In this section, he's highlighting people who have abandoned belief in God for idol worship. And in Rome, there were lots of fertility shrines, especially uh, to Minerva or um, Let's look at the passage again. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things, idols, rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, etc., etc. The example, the illustration that Paul is making is one of people who knew the truth about God and he was writing to Christians in Rome, many of whom would have come from a Jewish background, but not all. So these were people, he's illustrating, who at least knew of God or about God, uh, as, as Paul would have understood God, the, the God of Israel. But they'd abandoned that, and instead they got involved in these temple shrines, many of which were fertility Shrines. Here's the thing. In these shrines, very often, sex acts formed part of the idol shrine worship. That was part of the worship ritual. A lot more exciting, it has to be said, than singing the Magnificat. But there we go. That was how they did it. And I doubt if it's going to make a return into the Church of Ireland. These sex acts that were part of idol shrine worship included... Same-sex intercourse, often between older men and boys, but also um, sexual intercourse between men and women, and sexual actions, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't have understood it as intercourse, sexual actions between women and women. And in some cases, just a free-for-all, just an, an orgy as part of the ritual worship. <laughs> if you'd only worn a toga I, 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 you were in but you, there's a very strict dress code or undress code for it now the word that is dis, uh, interpreted shameful lusts in the New International Version therefore God gave them over to shameful lusts is better translated uncontrolled frenzy. It's ecstatic worship. Uh, so what was going on in, in these 
temples or shrines is that people were you know, on the magic mushrooms or whatever it would be. Uh, they were dancing, they were going into an ecstatic, frenzied trance, and then various sexual acts were part of the worship. Uh, and contemporary uh, historians and, and poets and uh, writers talk about these processions to the shrines of Minerva or Sibylle or whatever, uh, and they talk of um, young boys being uh, painted uh, to make them look as uh, woman-like as possible, uh, and they talk about women dressing in certain ways, and then they go in and they engage in this frenzied, trance-like activity where lots of different sexual practices take place. And Paul is saying, not a good thing. Not the way Christians or godly people should be doing it in spite of the odd time when it might seem like a reasonably good idea. Now the relevance. I'm going to suggest it's a big leap, folks, to extrapolate from people engaging in sex acts during ecstatic worship to same-sex committed loving relationships. Although I suppose committed loving relationships of any type of sexuality uh, can be fairly ecstatic uh, as well if that's how it works out for you. But it's a big jump to go from what Paul is describing to ordinary old same-sex relationships or sexual activity uh, within committed relationships. Is it prescriptive or descriptive? Well, clearly it's prescriptive against idol worship, especially sex acts as part of worship. But what, of what relevance that is remains to be seen or remains to be argued. Is it definitive or contextual? The context is that of pagan worship in first century Rome. Loving sexual relationships are not under consideration. That's not what he's talking about. It's just not there. And is it comprehensive or limited? Well, no attempt is made to address sexual relationships in general, only those associated with cultic worship. So if we set the Romans 1, 24 to 27 in its context, it's about people who understood, as Paul saw, the truth about God, but left that specifically to join in idol worship and in their idol worship they were given over to frenzied ecstasy and in their frenzied ecstasy as part of the idol worship they engaged in a variety of different sex acts now it's entirely up to someone to say fine actually Paul was wrong in saying that was wrong people are free to argue that if they want but that's what the discussion is was Paul right in saying that that was wrong? Not was Paul right in saying that same-sex relationships are wrong? Last text. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Um, actually, the authorised version is sort of a better one than the NIV because the NIV ducks out of it um, to an extent Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, 
Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and the NIV for revilers use slanderers, which actually puts an awful lot of us in bother, but there we are. It's a different day's story. Now, the original message, trying to get close to it. There are three important words that Paul uses here. He uses uh, the word uh, pornoi, which was translated fornicators in the authorized version, sexually immoral. Um, First Timothy uses the same terminology, so I'm just using First Corinthians as the, the one Pauline passage here. Malakoi, meaning effeminate, and arsenokotai, uh, abusers of themselves with mankind, in the authorized version. And the NIV links those two terms to read men who have sex with men. So it's actually very important that we understand what these three words are. Because Paul is, you know, look at it again. He's pretty clear. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. The pornoi, the malakoi, I need to look at it again, the arsenokoitai, along with those other people, the slanderers and the revilers and the drunkards. And... Sorry? Sinners will never get in. No, no we're, 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 there are all sorts of other things could be said around this uh, as to whether we think Paul is a, a little harsh. But anyway, we first of all need to know what it is that he's saying. Pornoi. What does the word mean? It's put here as sexually immoral or fornicators. Uh, in the Greek of the time, pornoi had a very definite meaning. Male prostitutes or men who indulge in unlawful sex. Now, the men who indulge in unlawful sex doesn't really help us because it doesn't tell us what lawful sex is. Although it could be related to the taboo idea, whatever society said. Uh, but the pornoi were male prostitutes. The malakoi. Let's have a little look at what that word means. The malakoi, literally, as an adjective, or the adjectival version of it, means soft. Uh, When Jesus talks about, in one of his parables, about people dressed in in soft clothing and fine raiment, uh, that's the word he uses there. So literally it means soft. But when it was used as a plural noun, as it is here, the malakoi, Uh, It means the passive partner in male same-sex acts. And what have we seen about being the passive partner in a sexual act? It's what? It's dishonorable within the entire culture of the ancient world. I mean, this is not good for the way sex was engaged in for women, clearly. But that's a whole other issue. But to be passive, especially for a male to be passive, uh, was dishonorable. It was taboo. Malakoi. I came across this word years ago when I was a student and I was hitchhiking from 
Israel back to Northern Ireland in the days when you were able to do that. Uh, and we were having difficulty hitchhiking from a Athens through to Italy or whatever. And uh, myself and two, two friends, we, we took a bus. Does anyone remember the magic bus? Used to go from Athens to London for like five pounds or whatever back in the 1970s. Uh, and so we got on this bus and it was a Greek driver. Um, and um, excuse my French when, when I re re relay the story to you. Uh, when people would pass him, he would lean out the window and he'd go, Malachi, Malachi. Uh, so eventually, he was a very grumpy man. Uh, and eventually, uh, somebody said, what does that mean? And he means wanker. Right. Oh, okay, right. Now at least we know what you're shouting. So oddly enough, down through the centuries, as a term of abuse, uh, a variation of this word has still stuck uh, with the language, or at least it did uh, with the language that he was using in any way. But it means the passive partner. Now, what about the third of the words? Uh, arson o koitai. Now, this is a word that Paul invented. This word does not appear in the Greek language before this point. Paul uses it here. It's used in 1 Timothy as well. Uh, and people go, what, what does it mean? Well, our friends, the, the Septuagint, our friend the Septuagint comes uh, to our aid here. Uh, remember the Leviticus 18.22 bit uh, that said, um, do, and with a male do not lie, lyings of a woman. In the Septuagint translation, the word for male is arsenos, uh, and the word for the lyings of a woman uh, was translated as bed, and it's koitai. And so a number of commentators have said, Oh, you put together male and bed, or man and bed. Paul is say, he's talking about man bedders. How do we translate that? Clearly, homosexuals. And so the older version of the New International Version uh, talked about homosexual offenders, was the way in which this was translated. But of course, it's always a mistake to stick two words that mean, or often a mistake to stick two words that mean something, put them together and then say they mean the combination of that. It doesn't always work that way. Um, and that's how it is here because we know from a contemporary of Paul, Philo of Alexandria, who lived at the same time as Paul and whose writings were famous throughout the ancient world at the time, that this term, that Leviticus 18.22, referred to temple, shrine, male prostitution. And the term could either mean, or Leviticus 18 could either mean, um, to be a male shrine prostitute was taboo, or to be a man who had sex with a male shrine prostitute was taboo. You with me on that? Tad technical, but there it is. So the three words that Paul uses, pornoi means male prostitutes, malakoi means 
the passive partner in a male same-sex act. And arsenokoitai refers to either male temple prostitutes or men who have sex with male temple prostitutes. Let's look at our relevance then. Well, it's a big step to extrapolate from these terms to committed same-sex relationships, or is it not? What do you think? Is this passage descriptive or prescriptive? Well, clearly it's prescriptive. He's laying down the law. Context, well, a lot depends on the cultural context. Remember which viewed passivity in sex as being dishonorable for adult males. Uh, The context was also sex acts as part of cultic worship. And we've got to remember that even in the strange and bizarre world of the Roman Empire, Corinth was notorious for sexual excess, whatever that might mean. Is it comprehensive or limited? Well, the text refers to specific limited activities. So, if those are the big texts that we have, and there are others, but those are the ones that people use, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Leviticus, Sodom and Gomorrah are are the big ones in terms of gender, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Matthew 10 for, for, for Jesus Have we got it right or have we got it wrong? In our, first of all, in our translations. And then secondly, in our churches. Yes, that a contextual reading of the biblical texts often used to support arguments against contemporary understandings of LGBT rights and full inclusion within society and the church. That is, inclusion on the same basis as heterosexual and cisgender individuals This reading suggests that these texts do not counter inclusive attitudes unless we're prepared to adopt the cultural, scientific and social norms of arbitrarily chosen biblical periods, which include submission of women, acceptance of slavery, the overriding importance of taboos to establish distinctive group identity and ignorance of genetics, physiology, psychology and social sciences. And if we're happy to do that, then the Bible says being gay is wrong. But if, on the other hand, in my opinion, uh, we are not prepared to buy into the cultural and scientific and so on norms of the time, uh, and if we're not prepared to accept uh, common English translations rather than digging down into what the Hebrew and Greek actually said, there are no texts that can be used to counter an inclusive contemporary understanding of LGBT plus rights in the church and in society. Coming clean, that's my opinion, but I want to say this. The Bible texts are not the whole story, that are said to be relevant to sexuality are not the whole story, the very point you were making. Lots of texts, lots of stories, the overall culture of the Bible that speak of love, justice, equality, integrity, uh, and inclusion in the kingdom of God. And many of these are in the Gospels, uh, and these were remarkable for the time. And guess what? Even some of them were written by St. Paul, uh, which can take some people by surprise. 
And so the, the, the point, are there boundaries, are there norms? I think there are. I think they're around equality, justice, dignity, love, integrity. Did I say honesty in terms of uh, relationships? Uh, and in the end, whatever we work out, and people must work this out for themselves, it really must look and see and taste and smell like God is love. And if it doesn't, I would suggest we've got it wrong. If it does, I suggest we might be at least a little happier that we might have got it right. Right.